58 Milwaukee. your services in the latter part of September, early October? I believe that's correct, yes. And you told us you came into Milwaukee in November? 21st. I'm sorry, uh, November 12th. All right, speak up a little. I think you guys speak up a little louder. Yeah, it's a bit of a buzz if you can wait. Yeah, there's speak. something hitting the microphone, Your Honor. It's causing some resonance. Okay, thanks. Um... What material did you receive prior to coming to Milwaukee before you met Mr. Dahmer for the first time? Prior, prior to meeting him the first time, um, I had the um, confession prior to seeing him, um, which was voluminous. Uh, I had uh, the charging documents, which were voluminous. Um, again, I'm trying to think carefully because there have been so much material that's continued to come on, but. Uh, those were the major things, I think. And, of course, I talked to you several times and so on. I had traveled to Baltimore to meet with you? Yeah, I think we've met in Baltimore on three occasions, if I'm correct. And during that period of time, uh, we either shipped you documents or you documents were brought to you? Yes, sir. Okay. You had the confession? Yes, sir. Yes, those are the, that's the material that I've reviewed in preparation for this case. And that material was sent to you by my office or brought by my office to you? Yes, sir. Did you review sufficient data, in your opinion, for you, that you would review sufficient data, in your opinion, for you to make the kind of opinion that you made here today? Yes, sir. I did tell you from the beginning that I wanted to continue to get as much information as possible, and if I were subsequently to see information that would lead me to change my opinion, that, that I was cautioning you that I, I would. But I was satisfied at the time that I rendered it uh, that it was correct, and there wasn't anything subsequently that caused me to change my mind. When's the last time you talked with Jeffrey Dahmer? Yesterday. And uh, did you also uh, go to his ap the apartment in question? Yes, I had gone to the apartment when I was first in, but only... Uh, to the outside, uh, and I went back uh, this time to see the inside as well. Now, I had marked for identification an exhibit, Defense 26. It's not been received, it hasn't been moved into receipt, but did you have occasion to get the, the information contained therein sent to you for your perusal? Yes, I had most of this information uh, earlier, uh, obviously, because this is essentially a reorganization and update. So I'd seen it in uh, various uh, earlier forms and, of course, uh, seen it this way as well. Okay. But that information that was sent to you is on a continuing basis? You were continuing to send me information as time went along. If I had questions, you were responsive to it. It is not... Uh, uh, you know that uh, additional statements were made by Mr. Dahmer different in some occasions than what he told the Milwaukee Police Department? Yes, I think I answered, I hope I answered it correctly before, that, that in most substantive ways I thought it was the same. I mentioned the business with the holes in the head. Uh, I know one thing he told me that was uh, different that uh, originally said with the first killing in Ohio that he disposed of the body fairly quickly, he subsequently told me that it was really a couple of years later when he came back he did. And again, in terms of the, the big picture, I'm not sure it mattered very much whether the first body was disposed of immediately or later on. So there, there were some uh, discrepancies, there were some things that he said that were different, but in, in terms of the essence of it, the, the big picture, I thought he was pretty consistent. Did he at any time indicate to you what he was going to do with all these various body parts and skulls and heads and things that he was keeping? Well, again, he, he would keep them. He, he would uh, be involved with them in intimate uh, ways. Um, he uh, I mean, described elaborately how he would then uh, get rid of uh, some things. There were other things that he, he kept. Uh, he, we talked about uh, all of that. And, of course, I was also referring to information I had available, uh, which gave me some sense even before I talked to him of what had gone on. Did he tell you whether or not he was ever, what he was going to do with the parts as a group uh, we told me many things. I think what you're trying to ask me is uh, about uh, one particular thing. Is if you're talking about in a group, that, that's, I suppose, what you're 
getting at. He, he uh, had what he called uh, a, a temple. At times he said it was a temple to him or to the devil. I think he used the word mosque. He didn't always use the same word, but basically it was that. Uh, he even, um, uh, I think, if I remember right, sketched it out, but certainly he described it. And uh, again, I, I apologize because we're talking about human beings here, but uh, you know, he had this plan of putting a couple bodies on the ends. In fact, at one point, um, he had hoped to preserve the entire bodies to do it, but couldn't do that. And then instead of saving the bones to do it as skeletons, uh, he was going to, uh, and again, this is awful, but he bought an, uh, an aquarium that originally was going to house one head in, in the middle. He had these, uh, um, I forget what you call them, statues that were going to be on the end. So he had this elaborate uh, plan for this uh, um, uh, uh, mosque or temple. And I think I mentioned earlier, it, it, it sounded... Uh, um, as if all this isn't sick and bizarre, but it sounded so bizarre, that's where I went about psychosis. He'd sort of talked a little bit about um, being in the presence of these people, and, and clearly he did feel he was maintaining that relationship by being in their presence in that temple, but he, at times was talking about whether he can sort of get powers about things like even uh, money uh, through, through, through that, but, but again, as I pushed him, it was just this sick thing of, of wanting to be in the presence of these people, sustaining the relationship and doing the setting of this thing he was calling the temple. Okay, I'm almost finished. I just want to ask you one thing. Looking at the pictures, some of them very grotesque. No, you're not talking about his... You're talking about the pictures he took and the police pictures at the scene yeah. or... All, yes, much of that. I mean, it was awful. The material that you read in the confession the material that we were sending you as we learned things, the police documents we were sending you, and all of the other material you were, we were sending you, tell us what you relied upon to render the opinion that you formulated on or about January the 10th in the written document you sent, and as you have testified here to in court today. Well, I'm really trying to look at, at everything. I mean, clearly if we had a test that could answer it, we, we'd have done the test and everybody could have gone home. So we're trying to look at every bit of information and decide what to conclude. I wanted to look at the things he was saying. Was he, for example, saying things compatible with what I would expect to hear from somebody knowing what I know about this kind of disorder, about the paraphilia? So I was interested in that. Uh, I was interested in how what he said applied to the body of knowledge that I, as someone who's worked in this area, uh, how, how that fit in. I was looking at his behavior and what we could learn about his behavior in terms of it either being consistent or inconsistent with what he had said. Uh, uh, perhaps the analogy, and I, I want to be careful because if there's concern I'm making too many, I, I don't want to do that, but I, I think it's apt is that, uh, you know, I, I don't have to count the trees to know that I'm in a forest. And, and, and just because there's a little clearing in the forest and I don't see trees right there, if they're all around me, it's, it's still the forest. It was really an issue like that here. You know, it wouldn't have mattered, let's say, that we took away... Uh, uh, a couple of items, it, you know, if it had been 14 bodies instead of 16 bodies or whatever, it, it, it wouldn't, certainly the case that some of what we see in Mr. Dahmer we can see in other people. But when you put it all together, you know, there were so many trees, to use this metaphor, it was hard to conclude that this wasn't a very ill man and hard to conclude, at least in terms of I, how I saw it, others can disagree, uh, that this wasn't a man who'd reached the point where he was just clearly out of control uh, by the time this thing was finally stopped. Did you ever do any studies on necrophilia or, were, or read any, any studies that, that, that were accepted as having a pretty good database for necrophilia? Yes, well, I'd mentioned, first of all, that I'd seen some people in, in, in the past who qualified for that diagnosis. Uh, I'd actually seen a teaching film and uh, been involved in a seminar with Dr. Philip Resnick, uh, where, where that was a discussion a number of years back. Um, I reviewed a, a number of papers. One was one by, by Dr. Resnick and another fellow, I've forgotten who, Resnick was the second author, which reviewed, um, the, an attempted review at least, the entire world literature on necrophilia. I think they were able to come up with uh, 122 cases. Uh, some were published and some weren't. I've forgotten the, the breakdown. So I, I did review the literature and, and also try to draw a, a little bit out of some of my own experiences and also out of the factors that are common in necrophilia. There's many things that are different, but some of the ones that are common to other disorders that I've seen. Not all necrophilia is murder, do they? No, sir. They, they divided it, particularly in this article that we're talking about. Uh, there, there are some people where uh, simply getting access to a corpse that's already dead uh, is an aspect of the necrophilia. Now, again, if the theme is, as I've described it here, to begin the relationship in life, have this zombie-like or transition state, and then continuing into death, uh, just going and getting the bodies is not really the enactment of the fantasies. But there, there have been necrophiles that have... Uh, gotten bodies out of funeral homes. There have been necrophiles that have 
obtain bodies in, in other ways. You know, do you have any idea how many necrophilias there have been who have been homicidal necrophilias? It was in the article, and I, I've forgotten if the number's important, I can check, but it's clear that there's a, a series that was discussed in, in that article. Uh, I could guess, but I shouldn't. I've forgotten the exact number. You could, uh, however, look at the data to see uh, whether or not you could refresh your recollection. Yeah, if it's important and, and you want me to look at the paper, I can do that. There are not many, are there? No, I mean, I, I, thank God there aren't many. No, it's, it's, it's rare. I just want to ask my associates if I please. Response, uh, I have no further questions. Thank you. Mr. McCann, cross-examination. Doctor, just so the jury understands, nobody died in that thirst study at Johns Hopkins, did they? I'm sure the jury understands. Pardon? That. I'm sure, sir, that the jury understands. So we're talking about death, and you cited that study, and what it really showed is that People will drink a little more than the doctor says, as long as they, 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 we all do a little bit more than the doctor tells us to, and that's what they were doing. Well, Getting a little more water, testing the limits, just like a diabetic once in a while, have an ice cream cone. That happens, doesn't it? That's what that study showed, didn't it? Well, what I, the point I was, was trying to make is I'm just is asking. That, you can answer well, yes or no. no this is a skilled, verbose, uh, who's going to be doing this all the time, trying to add to the response. Uh, if it pleases the court, he either starts answering questions or not. Disagree, Your Honor, and that's not the rule in this state on how to cross-examination. No, this is going to answer. He has the right to be responsive. If he doesn't think he is, he can move that and be stricken. No, this man we know is extremely verbose. We've all seen the flow of words. No. The doctor will answer the question. Uh, and if it's a question that's posed that in a way that it should can be answered yes or no, that's the way he will answer it. There may very well be explanations. And... Under the rules, Mr. Boyle will have a chance to redirect, and certainly he may ask him the unnecessary questions in order to get the explanations. Doctor, did anybody die in the study at Johns Hopkins? No, sir, not to the best of my knowledge. Doctor, there's a difference between a person who has a hunger and a desire to eat, and they satisfy that desire to eat, and another person who has a desire for a dead body and kills to get that dead body. There is a big difference, isn't there? There are both differences and there are also some similarities. There's a tremendous intervening prohibition, however, between taking life and to compare the two, uh, eating a, I might break down and eat a chocolate-covered donut and, and feel badly about it, but breaking down and killing someone is entirely different, is it not? I hope I made it clear I was not trying to trivialize, I was trying to make a point. Doctor, let's talk about your, your initial examination. Uh, when you were, you were hired by Mr. Boyle to come out uh, to become involved in this study? Yes, sir. Uh, well, I'm not sure what you mean by this study. I was, I was asked to come and um, render an opinion with respect to these issues. Did you tell him at that time that you had never before testified on the determination of responsibility in a murder case? I don't think he asked me, and I certainly don't recall um, stating that. And uh, you got the materials, you studied some of the materials, is that correct? Well, I, I hope I've studied all of the materials. Then there came a time that you came to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is that right? Yes, sir. And that was November 12th? Yes, as best I recall. Then you came and visited with the defendant, is that correct? Well, I, I wouldn't, I don't like the word visited. I came and, and uh, did an examination and uh, an, ev an evaluation of the defendant. How did you start the examination? Uh, I started by uh, uh, speaking with him, getting history. I believe I started with the family history, uh, talking about his mother and his father and his background. I think I went through some personal history, talking about his schooling and so on. Um, um, talked about various aspects that happened in a chronological time frame in his life. Uh, talked ultimately about the, the various uh, offenses, actually uh, made use of a uh, an outline that I had, so I didn't have to uh, ask him all the details about those, but it was generally in that kind of a... Of a How fashion. long did you talk about the family history? Gosh, I didn't time it. Um, 
family history, perhaps 15 minutes. I, 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 again, I, I wouldn't want to uh, say that I know that for sure. I, I think probably 15 minutes. And you covered the family history from, from what, zero to age 18? Well, again, it's a matter of detail. I certainly satisfied myself that I had inf enough information to answer the questions I need to ask. I'm not writing a biography about him. I'm trying to get information that's pertinent to the issues at hand, and I was satisfied that I had enough information. Again, keep in mind that the time with him was minuscule, and I certainly knew I was going to get tons of information about aspects of this, so I, I was in no way sensing I needed to depend simply upon what he had to tell me. And what did you then talk about after the family history? Well, again, I think I said after family history, I went into personal history, sort of his development, uh, things when he was younger, uh, schooling, uh, work history. How long did that take? Well, again, I don't recall. I saw him in the morning, uh, broke for lunch, came back in the afternoon. Um, I didn't know that it was important to time it, so if I had to remember, probably in the area of five hours, maybe six, uh, ballpark figure. Uh, it's, it's very, I'm not trying to be evasive, but it's difficult for me to say, gee, I spent this amount of time on this particular aspect of the history. The, the jail record book indicates that you spent a total of four hours and 45 minutes okay, well that's November 12, to, 1991, well, visiting five hours. the defendant. Uh, yeah. Would that be about accurate? The book indicates four hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, and I, I think I said about five hours. And you visited with him one hour and 10 minutes last night? Again, approximately. I wasn't timing it. It was probably about that amount of time. Sounds well, like you were timing it, so well, I'll yes, take, I your was, word, Doctor. take your word on that. While you were there for the four hours and 45 minutes in the county jail the first time, were the lawyers present at all talking as well? Uh, they introduced me. Um, they did bring in, in order to save me time, the uh, sort of the summary of the um, actually 17 killings. He's only charged with... 15 here, so they were there briefly, and, uh, but, but almost all of the time was spent uh, with me one-to-one uh, -one talking with him. Mm -hmm. Doctor, if you spent even just 45 minutes talking about first the family history and then the defendant's individual history, that would mean that you have four hours left, and even if we said there were only 16 homicides, it would mean that you spoke less than 15 minutes for homicide with the defendant? I did not spend a lot of time on each homicide. As I said a moment ago, it's sort of a metaphor. I didn't have to count the trees to know I was in a forest. I knew that I was going to get voluminous information about the homicides. I'd seen the confession ahead of time that went into great detail. I'd seen the, a very thorough investigation done by the police, and so I had lots of information. Uh, I wasn't there as an investigator trying to get all the facts from Mr. Dahmer about the homicides, I was there trying to make decisions with respect to me being a psychiatrist. And it's critically important to discuss his perception, is it not, of each of the homicides? It's critically important that I have a feel for his perception of the homicides. If, if I've reached at some point a conclusion uh, that someone, it, 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 this is an addicting-like phenomenon, it's hard for me to imagine that the person's addicted at every moment except for the moments of the killings and then goes back to being addicted. So I wasn't just approaching it of deciding something with respect to each tree in the forest, I was trying to get a sense of the big picture. Is this addictive a new word now? You're now saying he's addictive to killing? I don't recognize you saying that uh, during your direct he testimony. He sometimes used that word. He sometimes used the word compulsion. The word I would probably use would have to do with drive or driven. I think there are a variety of words to, I think, describe or try to capture what the phenomenon is all about. Well, let's say you spent uh, then uh, 15 minutes with the family history half an hour with his personal history. That leaves you four hours. What did you talk about during those four hours? Talked a lot about his state of mind. Uh, we talked about the kinds of feelings that he was experiencing at the times of the killings. We talked about the kinds of urges and fantasies that he has. Again, in four hours or so, you can go into a lot of detail about that sort of material. Uh, those are the sorts of things we discussed. What was his fantasy? Well, again, uh, he presents it in a variety of ways, so the fantasy is really something I put together by looking at the big picture. Um, but essentially, they were fantasies that uh, had a necrophilic theme, as I mentioned earlier. Let me ask uh, what he told you about the fantasy. What was his fantasy or fantasies? Okay. He told me that he had uh, overpowering um, urges to uh, kill, to have sex with dead bodies. He described the business of the zombie-like state and how he had feelings of, of uh, wanting to become involved in people when they were in that sort of a state. 
Uh, he talked about the approximations to the full fantasies that occurred when he'd gone to the bathhouses and how he was um, uh, involved with people that he had given a drug to and related to them sexually while they were right, in the streamline. That's nothing to do with the fantasy you're saying about visiting a bathhouse and so on. I've asked what his fantasy was. The was fantasy his... there is of having sex with a person who's in this drug-like state. Did the fantasy include murdering people? He tells me that as early, I think, as 14 or maybe 15, that, that uh, there were fantasies that included murder, yes, sir. How? Oh, gosh, I don't know that he talked about the early fantasies of, of how it was. I remember in... Um, were you too rushed to ask him? Well, if he finish his answer, I know he can do that. Why don't you refer to your notes, and if you don't recollect about his early fantasies, what they were, why don't you refer to your notes and... Uh... Your Honor, there's no showing that he has to refer to his notes. He can't tell him to refer to his notes. If the doctor can't answer it and has to refer to his notes, the doctor will volunteer that. He doesn't have to look at his notes. He just didn't finish his answer. That's what I was objecting to. Well, you know, maybe we should let the doctor do the talking. Uh, doctor, are you prepared to continue your answer? Yeah, I, I'm glad to answer. It doesn't matter to me whether I want my notes should be used or not. But if you want to repeat the question, I'm sorry I'm distracted. What was the early fantasy that he told you about? The early, uh, he certainly told me that early on, and I pressed him on this, that he had fantasies that included killing. Um, I believe that he talked early on about um, sort of clubbing people, but I'm not absolutely sure. Again, I want to stress that the themes were really what I was interested in, the specific details of how he did the killing, uh, and you can differ with me, but as far as I was concerned, weren't that, that critical. Did you ask him, uh, what, how does the killing occur in the fantasy? Sir, again, I don't remember if I asked about each and every one, but we did talk about the fact that he had fantasies about people being asleep and killing them while they're asleep, and the way they would get asleep would be drugging them. We certainly talked a lot about that. Did you ask him how he was going to kill them while they were asleep? I know how he did, and he described how he did, um, so I suppose the answer is yes. No, I asked you, did you ask him how he was going to kill them in the fantasy? I'm you not said sure he had that, a fantasy yeah. early on, and I'm asking, did you ask him how he was going to kill within the fantasy? I'm not sure that I did. I had the confession and was aware of how he had killed each of the, the victims, so I, I, I don't know for certain whether I asked him that or not. But the fantasy has an important role in this type of thing, doesn't it? It does, but I certainly didn't have any doubt that these fantasies were present. But you didn't ask him how he was to kill within the fantasy. I did not correct? go through each and every killing and say, tell me exactly what the fantasy was with respect to each and every killing. I certainly knew the themes, I certainly knew the behavior, and I knew that he was preoccupied because he told me that with these fantasies, that they were overwhelming, uh, that he had tried to resist them, that he had finally given up trying to resist them. But you never asked him, how do you kill within that fantasy? You never asked him that. I'm not sure whether I asked him that. Well, do you check your notes or did you not bother to make a note on it? I don't think it's critical. Doctor, that's for the jury to decide and me to put the question, sir. Well, if you want, listen, you sound like you want me to look at my notes. If you want me to look at my notes, I'm glad to do that. I'm, I'm not sure if that's what you're asking. Yeah, doctor, I've looked at your notes. I can't read them. Would you turn to your notes, where that first fantasy, and see if you asked him what that fantasy of killing was? Well, I'm going to object to that. Unless the doctor needs to look at his notes to answer the question, he doesn't have to look at his notes. Well, how can counsel force him to look at his notes? Well, I don't think counsel can force him to look at his notes, but I think that he, uh, he's indicated uh, difficulty uh, recalling, uh, and it would seem to be that's re a reasonable thing to do to look at one's notes. Now, if, uh, if, he's, if he feels his notes won't help, uh, we can just go on. But I do not want to set the posture on this question that his notes, then, are going to be a subject matter Unless he needs his notes to refresh his recollection, his notes cannot be pierced in, in, in this kind of an inquiry. And I submit that the counsel can ask him what his best recollection is, and if he doesn't have an answer, he doesn't have to go into his notes. I have his notes. I can't read them. 
They're not legible. Are your notes well, legible? I know I sent them to you, and I sent them when you asked, but they were notes simply taken from me. I didn't write every word he told me. There were things I would jot down as I went through. Um, I sent you them because you asked for them. I'm not sure what question you're asking. Yeah, they're not typed, are they? I had no reason to type my They're notes. scratched out, more like sure, points of reference. There writing with a, with a pen. Do you remember what he told you about what the fantasy involves in the killing? I did not, as I recollect, go through each killing asking him to give me a specific fantasy with respect to a specific killing. No, doctor, I'm asking you, you said he began to have a fantasy as a younger man. That's correct. I am asking you what, how the killing occurs in that fantasy. I do not believe that I asked him that, nor am I, that I think, I'm just telling what I think, that that was particularly important. Did you ask him about his first fantasy that involved a jogger, did it not? We talked about what I referred to in my earlier testimony as a near miss. Uh, he had been having fantasies about killing. Um, there was a particular person that he'd seen jogging. He actually, in, in having these fantasies, went to look for this jogger. Uh, thank God the jogger didn't come by and so he didn't act and we talked about all of that. Was that fantasy with respect to the jogger a fantasy of killing yes he was intending if the jogger came by to kill him do you have any notes sir that substantiates that uh, again I'm, I'm not sure you, you seem very determined to get me to read my notes um, I don't know do you want me to read the notes I'll look. would you check your notes as to what he said about that jogger Okay, now it may take me a while to find that because the notes will have to be gone through. Um, and again, the notes may be in a suitcase, so we may need to find those. Uh, I think we'll have to take a moment. I believe the notes are probably in that material that's, uh, that's elsewhere. Is it okay? I'll come over. We're in a brief break here while uh, Dr. Frederick Berlin, the defense expert, the psychiatrist called by uh, Gerald Boyle, looks to clarify something uh, asked by District Attorney E. Michael McCann. McCann said that uh, the doctor had talked about Dahmer referring to his necrophiliac fantasies, about the fantasies of, of having uh, sex with a dead body. And McCann said, did his fantasies include murder? And the answer that the doctor gave was yes. And McCann wants to know more about uh, exactly what those fantasies included. And did he talk at all about how he fantasized murdering somebody? Not real sure what uh, what McCann's point is, but you can tell that uh, at the beginning we talked before about how McCann, in that uh, study we were referring to, that handbook for prosecutors, said that uh, the prosecutor in an insanity case should talk about the lack of time that the defense expert may spend with the witness in order to reach his conclusions, and McCann started uh, right off the bat asking Dr. Berlin, how much time did you spend? Uh, Berlin said he spent uh, four hours and 45 minutes. That man right there, in case you haven't been watching over the past few days, that is Jeffrey Dahmer's father, Lionel Dahmer, and his uh, stepmother, who were here for opening arguments and then missed a portion and uh, are back uh, today, and I believe they were here Friday, most of Friday, and they are expected to be here for the duration of the trial. But McCann uh, specifically, right when uh, he began questioning the doctor, started talking about how much time the doctor had spent with, uh, with Jeffrey Dahmer and how much time they spent talking about family background. And I can only guess that McCann uh, is leading up to the point uh, that the doctor is reaching I'm certain sorry, conclusions without uh, spending a great deal of time with the defendant. The doctor pointing out that he had uh, voluminous amounts of material to deal with that he didn't have to sit in and talk to Jeffrey Dahmer about every single 
murder because those were all outlined in the confession which uh, Gerald Boyle had obviously furnished Dr. Berlin with. But uh, McCann asking now that the doctor refer to his notes to see what he, I'm guessing uh, McCann wants to know specifically why the doctor said that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer talked about his necrophiliac fantasies and he wants specific proof as to what the doctor based that on. The doctor said he, that is based on his conversations with Jeffrey Dahmer and McCann wants to know exactly what those conversations are. If you were with us this morning, you, you know that we talked about uh, with another attorney about how this doctor's conclusions and his study as well as his notes when he interviewed Jeffrey Dahmer are furnished to the other side. Uh, the, in this kind of a case, it's, you don't hire a doctor to be an expert in testimony and then all of a sudden uh, surprise the other side with uh, the doctor's conclusion. Dr. Berlin gave his reports to McCann as well as Boyle. He gave his notes that he scribbled down when he talked to uh, Jeffrey Dahmer to McCann as well as Boyle. And the same holds true for the experts, the psychiatrists and the psychologists that will come after Dr. Berlin, as well as the psychiatrists and psychologists that uh, E. Michael McCann had interviewed Jeffrey Dahmer. Those conclusions have already been furnished to Gerald Boyle. So Gerald Boyle is not going to be surprised at the conclusion that uh, the other psychiatrists make any more than, than uh, E. Michael McCann was surprised at the conclusion that Dr. Frederick Berlin made about Jeffrey Dahmer. I think that uh, McCann will, will simply, if in fact the doctor can't find his specific notes about that conversation with Jeffrey Dahmer, maybe uh, we'll try to imply that, uh, well, here's, uh, that they again. didn't talk uh, about that. Um, I'll be quiet. We'll join the courtroom again. Uh, this was with respect to um, a bike incident, I guess I, I called it a near miss before the first one. Uh, he thought it was a year or two before that he had the, the urges, uh, asking, uh, put in parentheses, uh, masturbation. Was he masturbating uh, to these urges? Uh, uh, he talked about it being uh, to a good-looking guy. Uh, he talked about this fella, uh, and again, by the way, these aren't sentences, I mean, the notes to myself, being on a bike. Uh, he talked about, um, again, talking about both masturbation fantasies and behavior, uh, took a shot, uh, sorry, um, sh a sawed-off baseball bat, um, thoughts uh, wanting uh, for this one guy who uh, used to walk down the road. Um, um, at this point, I was talking about him, whether he was intending to kill the guy, and he was saying, well, he'd have the, talked about the masturbation fantasies, um, um, as I recall, because I think the reason I put this, he said no, and I put in parentheses, the bat suggests it must be in the back of his mind. If he's carrying a bat, he's not just going there uh, uh, to look. Um, those are, I think, the notes that I had about that. Uh, the question... Well, again, age 15 before... I'm sorry. The question was, did the fantasy involving the jogger involve a killing? You thought that it did. You've refreshed your recollection from the notes. He, he definitely told me he was having the fantasies of killing, and then when I asked him if when he left that day he was specifically talking about killing, he kind of backed off and said he didn't think he was, and I made a note, and I think I discussed it with him. Again, I didn't write every single thing we said, but I see I put here, that suggests back of mind, and I think I made the observation to him that uh, it, it, it looks as though you, you must be thinking of killing if you're carrying the bat. You can knock a person out with a bat, can't you? Yes, I didn't say for certain, but he's been having fantasies about killing. He's carrying a bat, and I'm a psychiatrist. I'm trying not only to hear from him, but to make observations. And it was my feeling, uh, you know, going to tell me you don't think he was going to kill the guy, fine. My sense was that uh, that was a pretty ominous situation. And uh, so you say at that time he told you, when you spoke to him on November 12th, that he said he was already having fantasies about necrophilia before he uh, had this dealing with the jogger. Or I'm attempted to set up a deal. That with he the was having masturbation fantasy. I'm sorry, you said something when I started to talk. Sorry. Right. He was saying he was having very early on fantasies, and I was particularly interested in masturbation fantasies that could kill him. And that preceded the contact with the, the attempt to meet the jogger. Yes, because that's where I got into near misses and, and, and got him to talk about what he'd been 
thinking about when he masturbated, and then we led up in the discussion to the particular fellow that, that, and, and him going out with the bath. Then the Hicks matter followed after that. Is that correct? Did you discuss the Hicks matter with him? Well, again, uh, as you'll see here, uh, and, and I apologize, I didn't know you. Um, I, when I went back to all that material, I think we gave this yesterday, I realized I'd written on the, on the back of, of this uh, particular piece of paper. And this paper, as you'll see, starts with Stephen Hicks and goes through all of the victims. And because I had a lot of information, I did not do as much writing at this point because that was there. And so jotted some things uh, down. Uh, but again, the answer to your question is I'm familiar with, uh, with Hicks. This, this is something that counsel gave you, counsel for the defense. I had um, originally felt that I would go through in greater detail each of the seven killings with him. I think that was early afternoon. Uh, and uh, Wendy Petrinkus, one of the lawyers, pointed out that, that we had this material. And so I basically stopped some writing, just kind of went through that with him. Uh, and made sure that I had touched base on each of these. And you relied on that material to guide you in, in your discussion with Yes, it, it was very confusing. Again, I've learned it in, in detail here, but here are these 17 cases, and this was an extremely helpful outline, and so I just kind of sat that down and began to talk with it. That was prepared by counsel. Do you understand that? Yes, that counsel, absolutely. Counsel gave that to me. And that resulted from counsel interviewing the defendant. Is that correct? The caption says follow-up number one, does it not? Uh, yes, sir. The top of the page is follow-up number one, and then it starts with the name of the uh, first person that you'd mentioned. Uh, do you know who prepared that? Well, I don't know which of the attorneys prepared it, but uh, uh, so I, I'm not the best person to answer all that. I certainly uh, was aware of much of this information, even from the confession, and found this very helpful as a guideline to structure with respect to these victims as I... Do you uh, know thought. if that was information that counsel took from the defendant directly? Do you know? My belief is, to answer your question, that it was a combination of clarifications of information that the counsel had in other ways, and then speaking with uh, Mr. Dahmer uh, and making certain that they had it in the most updated fashion. That was my belief regarding it. In other words, they compiled the police review materials and then conducted additional interviews with the defendant. Is that correct? That is my belief. And then the defendant gave that information to counsel, and it was then given to you. Is that correct? Yes, as a useful outline while I was and sitting. You used that in conducting the interviews, is that correct? I, I used that as a structure that made it easier when I got to the part of the interview. And in fact, if you look at my notes, there's an original box here somewhere where I start going 1 through 12, and then I never fill it in because I was going to go through this myself. And when one of the attorneys handed me this, I was able to put this down, and, and, and this made it much easier. Do you, you understand that counsel is constrained ethically to work zealously on behalf of the defendant? Do you know that? Of course I know that. That does not impugn honesty, but you know as a psychiatrist, if counsel is zealously constrained ethically to represent the defendant, inevitably in filtering through information, there is a good possibility of some distortion, is there not? On a, on a regular academic question rather than on this case because if it's on this case I'm going to object to it because there's been no foundation and any of that took place I don't have to care about the zealously going to work for your client but if that's going to lead to distortions reference to what I did or my associates did I'm going to object to the form of the question it's going to be pointed out that the information passed through counsel constrained ethically to zealously work for the defendant then that jury has the right to know that, that the basis of that information. Came. I don't have any problems with that, but he said it, it contains distortions. That's not, they said I don't isn't. think uh, Mr. McCann was suggesting any impropriety on the part of the defense counsel. I just think i got to make that clear. I know as a psychiatrist, I need to be very objective. I also looked at the information the police had. I looked at the information uh, uh, that had to do with uh, quotes the other side. So, uh, you know, I, I put it into perspective. But uh, again, to follow up on what Mr. Boyle said, I had absolutely no reason to believe that he was intentionally misleading me, providing me with this. No, so you did know that it was coming from counsel in of some Of course I knew it was handed to me. Right. Did you know that counsel is zealously constrained to represent the client? Yes. In, inevitably, is it not so, doctor, that from your own background in psychology and psychiatry, that inevitably when the commitment is to argue and present to a jury that the man is not
should not be held responsible, that inevitably there's a selection process that they will feed to you the information that supports of such a finding. Of course, that's why I read that suitcase full of material so that I wasn't simply coming to conclusions based only on this. It's why I was talking to Mr. Dahmer myself. It's why I made the point this was simply a convenient structure to guide me as I sat there and talked with him. If I was to come in here and say, I read what the attorney gave me, and I've come to my conclusion, be ridiculous. But that isn't what happened. My point is, doctor, with a 17-count homicide, 17 homicides, 15 counts, it is ridiculous to think you can do it in four hours and 45 minutes. Would you agree with that? Well, I, no, I don't tell you how to do your job, and, and I don't think you should tell me how to do mine. I'm very conscientious. This is a very serious matter. I have spent hour after hour. I've made it clear to the attorney if new information came up, I would change my mind. I wasn't here as a hired gun. I resent that. I spent a lot of time and was very thorough, and the notion that because I used as a guide one little bit of information to help me in asking questions that somehow I didn't do my job right, no, I don't agree with that. Doctor, you spent far less time than any other of the experts involved, didn't you? Far less time in terms of interviewing Perhaps, this. And I don't mean to be smart, but you're getting me a bit mad. Perhaps I'm a little bit more efficient. I, I, it's not the amount of time you spend, it's the quality of time. It wasn't just the hours with Mr. Dahmer. I wanted objectivity. I spent hours reading the police reports, the investigations, people who talked to his neighbors, people that talked to uh, accusations were made about uh, killings in other states. I did everything within my power to make certain I wasn't getting a biased view of this case. And the best way to do that is to talk to the defendant himself, not what the police wrote, not and what counsel wrote, not what neighbors said, but to talk to the defendant himself. And if I'd have is told you I spent six more hours with the defendant and hadn't done all this, you'd have said, Doctor, you are very naive. You think you can get the answer from talking to him? He's biased. You should have been looking at all that other information to make sure you're objective and fair and balanced. Doctor, I'm sorry for yelling. Doctor, yeah, doctor, yeah. My professional and personal uh, credibility and my integrity. No, doctor, you're inexperienced. That's what I'm pointing out. The attempt to point out your inexperience. You've never been involved in a murder case, much less a serial well, murder case. Perhaps you should call the people in the American, um, American Psychiatric Association, ask them why an inexperienced person like me is a colleague with your expert witness on that particular committee. That's a paraphilia committee, is it not? I'm to... not an expert on the spectrum of law. I'm not an expert on the spectrum of homicide. I believe this, has, this man has a mental disorder that predisposes him to act in this way, and I think I'm very much an expert, and I say it with pride. I, I'm sorry you're getting me angry, but I'm very much an expert on the issues that are relevant here. Doctor, you've had no experience, have you not, in handling the determination of responsibility in a first-degree murder case? I haven't testified about that in a case. You're absolutely right. And you are not a forensic psychiatrist, are you, doctor? I have no interest in trying to become an expert in the whole spectrum of issues, uh, making wills and uh, ability to decide whether or not the doctor should turn off the respirator and so on that often is involved in forensic psychiatry. I don't come in here as an expert that knows how to talk in court. I believe I know a lot about the paraphilias. I think that's relevant to the decisions that need to be made here. I have tried my best to communicate as clearly and as effectively as possible so that the people that have to make an important decision will be as well informed as they can be. It's clear you don't like the way I'm doing it, but I'm doing my best to do that, and I'm proud of that. Doctor, in terms of necrophilia itself, the concept of necrophilia, that means affection for a dead body, does it not? It's more than affection. It includes all of the things we've been talking about. Here's a man that's, that's having gentle sex with a dead body, that, that's talking to the head that's been severed, that, that's seeing himself as continuing on in an intimate relationship by eating somebody. All right, it's Doctor, all did he tell you that he talked to the head? Did he tell you that? No, he didn't tell me that. I know that because that was in other information that I've read since then. Right. Why didn't you ask him, Doctor? If that seems so important that you'd cite it now to the jury, if it seems significant, talking to a severed head seems somewhat significant, you didn't bother to ask him about that, doctor, did you? I did not need, in order to make a decision about whether he had a mental disease, which is what I needed to do, to make a decision about whether or not he was sufficiently enough impaired by that mental disease that he lacked substantial capacity to say to him, Mr. Dahmer, did you ever talk to one of the heads? Doctor, you've written a number of articles about paraphilias, and in those articles you have said, in a number of articles, that the only paraphilias where violence is found, basically, is in sadism and masochistic type of paraphilias. You've said that in print, haven't you, Doctor? If you show me that, um, I'll tell you that I've spoken in a way that I shouldn't have, but I don't believe I've said that. 
That's generally where it's found, is it not? Again, I know what you're quoting. There are a number of paraphilias that can predispose people to violence. I mentioned masochism, where the violence can be directed towards the person themselves. Certainly in sadism, uh, there is a condition called paraphilic coercive disorder that can predispose people to rape. Pedophilia, I don't want to call it physical violence, but there can be real trauma of a psychological nature to a child. I've commented on that in numerous writings. Uh, certainly necrophilia, you have to be a fool to argue that that isn't something that can predispose to the most awful and, and violent of acts. So uh, I can't imagine that you would suggest that I felt that uh, the only violence that you'd ever see would be in sadism. If you have, by the way, you asked me to show you my notes, show me where I said that. Necrophilia. Necrophilia itself relates to the body. It does not embrace the concept of killing, does it? There are necrophiliacs that we have never been involved it, in killing. I probably have it here since I know I'm going to show you things that right here it's in there. Anyway, the article by Dr. Resnick that was discussed earlier. I, I know Dr. Resnick. I, as I said, I, I addressed the topic of necrophilia in a, in a conversation with him. You need, I'll find it in there. But, that's but it specifically says that one of the types of necrophilia is homicidal necrophilia. And it lists the number of cases in the world that fall into that category. That's one of the identified types of necrophilia that's published about in the literature, not by me, but by other people. I just know about it because I try to keep up with what's going on. Necrophilia itself. Not homicidal necrophilia. I'm talking about necrophilia, not homicidal necrophilia. Necrophilia itself involves this urge towards the dead body. Is that correct? You know, I, I think I've answered. I'm necrophilia involves many things. One aspect of uh, one, one of the things one expects to see in necrophilia is a description from the individual so afflicted that he, it's usually he, it could be she, but usually he is having intense recurrent erotic fantasies and urges and then the, the theme of those urges and fantasies should be of a necrophilic nature it's not that every single person that's ever been written as a necrophile is a rubber stamp of exactly the same content but the theme the idea that it's going to be about necrophilia is going to be there just as without exhibitionism or pedophilia it's not exactly the same fantasy but what they share in common in each of those conditions in pedophilia it's about kids maybe different kinds of kids, different ones are relating to kids, but it's about kids, and exhibition is about exposing. And that's why I tried to make the point that my expertise in the other areas is applicable here. It's rare to see necrophilia, uh, and I can learn some things from the other, th from the other uh, areas that I have some expertise in that I think are, are applicable. Anyway, I... I ne many fast. necrophiles, many necrophiles have nothing to do with killing. Isn't that true? One of the things in the article I just mentioned, this is, I uh, think, if it the, the court, may the witness the be directed to answer. It's a yes or no answer. answer. Yes. I'm sorry. Please ask the question again. Many necrophiles have nothing to do with killing. There is a subdivision of... I mean... Judge, that's a yes or no answer. He uh, knows it. Yes no he knows no. it's a yes or no answer. Answer the question, sir. The answer is that there is yes, there are some necrophiles, people are diagnosed as necrophiles, where killing is not an issue, as I explained earlier. Persons that work in mortuaries sometimes become involved in necrophilic activity. Isn't that true? Yes, sir, that's correct. People that work in morgues sometimes become involved in necrophilic activity. Isn't that true? Yes, sir. There's persons that have had reported of persons having necrophilic contact even with their wife after death. Isn't that true? Yes, sir. Now, in terms of the, of the, the law itself, just so the jury understands as we draw on that. Could we have the...
second. I'm sorry, sir, I can't. Yes, sir. Subsection one is the basic definition in terms of the insanity responsibility law. Just so the, 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 the jury is uh, fully understands, the person is not responsible for criminal conduct. I can't, I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Mental responsibility of defendant, sub one. A person is not responsible for criminal conduct if at the time of such conduct, as a result of mental disease or defect, he lacked substantial capacity either to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct or conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. In your testimony, you had that in mind, that yes, test, did yes, you not? Yes. Just so the jury clearly understands, in your testimony, you have made it very clear that this defendant, throughout these matters, appreciated the rightfulness and wrongfulness of his conduct. Is that correct? Yes, sir. I looked at that. Yes, yes. So as far as you're saying to the jury, you are in no way saying that he lacked substantial capacity to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct. Is yes, that correct? Sir, that's correct. So you would say the only, your suggestion would be it's on the second so-called prong, is that correct? Yes, sir, that's correct. Of the law. Yes, sir. You're a member of the American Psychiatric Association? Yes, sir. And there's been discussion at the American Psychiatric Association about that's the so-called ALI test for laws, that's a first insanity. Are you aware of that? Yes, sir. There's been discussion at the American Psychiatric Association about that second prong, is there not? I don't have first-hand knowledge, but the insanity defense is very controversial, so I, I can't imagine there hasn't been discussion. I'm not interested particularly in what their position is, except a stated reason that appears in this exhibit. Let me read it for you for members of the jury. It's from the American Psychiatric Association. Many psychiatrists, however, believe that psychiatric information relevant to determining whether a defendant understood the nature of his act and whether he appreciated its wrongfulness is more reliable and has a stronger scientific basis than, for example, does psychiatric information